This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Geno Story. We agreed to do this, a podcast about genocide and the field of genocide studies. I'm Professor John Lestrange. And I'm MJ. Before we get started with what we're going to talk about today, I just want to finish introducing us. I got my bachelor's degree in history and secondary education from Kane University in 2013, and my master's degree in Holocaust and Genocide Studies in 2017 also from Kane University. Meanwhile, I got my bachelor's in secondary English education and creative fiction writing, double major what what, and I got my master's in creative fiction writing. Delightful. Uh, Since graduating from Kane University, I have written and self-published two books, both of which you can find on Amazon. Feel free to congratulate me now. I'll wait. Thank you so much. Uh, They are called Representations of Genocide in Cartoons and Representation of Genocide in Video Games. They are about exactly what it sounds like they are about. Currently, I am working on a uh, new project called We Agreed to Do This, just like this podcast, uh, which is a weird, strange, fictional history book that I will probably talk about at length at some other time. So while my experience doesn't have to do with history in the way that John's does, his is very direct, mine is more adjacent. I am a creative fiction professional. I've written two different novel drafts. One is a young adult urban fantasy. The other is a new adult alt history, but both have to do with issues of race, uh, issues of oppression for LGBT communities, for people of color. And it's really important for me to be aware of the histories that are involved with my characters. Now, I turned 30 about four days ago. And as a 30-year-old white man, I had two options before me. I could get really into craft beer or I could start a podcast. And I hate beer. So you don't hate beer. You don't prefer beer. There are some beers that you will drink and I have witnessed it. There are like three beers and I could probably list them now, but please don't ask me to because I can't actually think of any beers off the top of my head. Anyway, Innocent I- Gun. <clears throat> Innocent Gun. Innocent Gun Kentucky is very good. Kentucky Bourbon Barrel. That one's more your favorite. But you I have had it and I have enjoyed it, yes. You like a good sour. I do like a good sour. (laughs) So when I was thinking about, uh, well, if I'm going to start a podcast, what should it be about? I figured I'd just lean into, you know, my area of expertise and do one about genocide and genocide studies. 
Um, I looked on Spotify, and there are some other podcasts about genocide out there, some of which I will probably just give small shout-outs to uh, at later points in this show. None of them really covered it in a comparative or comprehensive way, which is how I like to view genocide, and I find that it really helps when dealing with issues of preventing genocide and recognizing it as it's happening. This podcast was originally going to have a different name, but uh, the name I was going to pick was stolen by a gentleman who streams uh, StarCraft II on Twitch. On I'm not going to say his name or what the title was going to be. I just want him to know what he did. Uh, which is steal my perfect, beautiful name. So we went with uh, our B team here, Geno's story, a portmanteau of genocide and history. And we agreed to do this, which is really how all genocides happen. Uh, they never happen in a vacuum. It's never something that happens outside of us or our experiences in a society. We agree to do this. Hopefully throughout the course of this podcast, you'll see how we agree to do that. So before we start talking about your notes in the history, can we talk about what these terms mean? Like when we say genocide, what are we referring to? Like, what does that include? So the dictionary defines genocide as the deliberate and systematic extermination of a national, racial, political, or cultural group. And while that's technically correct, it's also simple and reductionist. Uh, the actual definition of genocide takes an entire uh, UN general resolution. That what gets, does that mean? Uh, so the job of the UN, by and large, is to pass international law and create the rules by which the international community abides. Uh, so in 1948, they passed a general resolution wherein they defined genocide, um, and it has a long and complicated uh, definition that we will get to in a bit. Lemkin was really interested when he made the term in establishing uh, protections for, you know, what he considered protected groups of people. He took uh, the Greek root genos, meaning uh, race or tribe, and the Latin root side, and he smushed them together and he made the word genocide. Um, we'll go over a little bit later both the UN's definition and the one that Lemkin uh, came up with originally. There's a lot of debate in the field of genocide studies over what exactly constitutes genocide and how we should define it. But for now, let's talk a little bit about uh, Raphael Lemkin and, you know, where this term and all of his work came from. Genocide is a concept and an action that extends all the way back into antiquity. Uh, we'll be talking in a later arc about you know, some of the oldest genocides that we have uh, on the planet. But the word itself is less than 100 years old. It was invented by Raphael Lemkin, a Polish Jewish lawyer. Lemkin was born in the year 1900 on a small farm near the Polish town of Wolskowisk. He started his work back in the 1930s, trying to secure legal safeguards for ethnic and religious groups uh, in an international capacity. So he worked a lot with the League of Nations back when the League of Nations existed. In 1933, he made a presentation to the Legal Council of the League of Nations Conference on International Criminal Law 
in Madrid, for which he had prepared an essay on what he called the crime of barbarity, as a crime against international law. We didn't really have terms like crimes against humanity uh, or war crimes yet. So what does he mean, or what did he mean, by the crime of barbarity? So when Lemkin said the crime of barbarity, he was specifically referring to the Armenian genocide that took place between 1915 and 1922 in the Ottoman Empire. This is what he based most of his work on. What spurred him to start doing this in earnest was a 1933 massacre uh, in Iraq that killed between 600 and 3,000 Assyrians. So when the Nazis invaded Poland in 1939, Lemkin, being a Polish Jew, was in a lot of danger. He managed to escape to Sweden, where he lectured at the University of Stockholm for a brief time. Lemkin did a lot of lecturing on law and politics and ethics the various universities he worked at during this time. In 1941, he got permission to enter the U.S., where he briefly taught law at Duke University in North Carolina. Then, in the summer of 1942, he lectured at the School of Military Government at the University of Virginia, and then in 1943, he worked as a special advisor on foreign affairs for the War Department, uh, what we now call the State Department, and consulted with the U.S. Board of Economic Warfare and the Foreign Economic Administration. He had uh, fingers in a lot of pies. It was in 1944 that Lemkin first tried to formally define genocide. Um, the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace published Lemkin's book Axis Rule in Occupied Europe where he talked about you know, Nazi rule across Europe. Um, he published this in 1944, before the war was over and the, you know, before the Nazis had been defeated. So I'm, I'm interested to see what that book would have looked like had it been published 10 years later, but he wrote it when he wrote it. Lemkin's book and his work with the UN and the Nuremberg Trial Chief Justice Robert H. Jackson became the foundation for the entire field of genocide studies today. Despite getting the term genocide included in the indictments against Nazi leaders during the Nuremberg Trials, Genocide didn't become an international legal term until 1948, three years after the Nuremberg trials were complete. Do we know why that delay happened? Bureaucracy, by and large. Uh, Lemkin had to fight pretty hard to get the UN at the time to do anything that could risk violating state sovereignty. The UN was a relatively new organization and never really had much of a backbone when it came to uh, international human rights policy. It just, it was a lot of red tape and bureaucracy and getting people to understand that, you know, as technology grows and as there are more and more people on the planet, there's going to be more and more international interactions between people. And there are some concerns that surpass national borders, uh, like human rights concerns like genocide. While in Nuremberg, Lemkin learned about the deaths of 49 of his family members. Jeez, big family. Yeah, they all died in concentration camps, the Warsaw Ghetto, and on death marches uh, under Nazi rule. The only members of his family who actually survived the horrors of the Holocaust were his brother Elias, uh, his wife, and their two sons. I unfortunately couldn't find Elias's wife's name nor the names of their two sons 
So it's unfortunately just Elias's wife uh, for now. I will keep looking, and if I learn that information, I will try and include it in a later episode referring back to this. Justice for Elias's wife. Justice for Elias's wife. In addition to all his other work, Lemkin also continued his work to get genocide and other crimes against humanity recognized under international law and to get laws created that would forbid and punish these actions. He proposed a similar ban on crimes against humanity during the Paris Peace Conference of 1945, but his proposal was turned down. The world was fairly well consumed with the idea that states should have complete and utter control over what happened within their borders. After 15 years of consistent and thankless work, uh, going around in a oft-patched suit with a ratty, falling-apart briefcase, it finally paid off. I'm sorry, is that an actual description of Lemkin, or is that your personal headcanon? This is what I was told in a lecture by my introduction to the Holocaust teacher, Dr. Klein, at mm. Kane University. I couldn't find that specific <laughs> description in any of the sources that I used, but Lemkin did die fairly penniless. Uh, eventually. His funeral was uh, attended by a great many people, but the man barely had a penny to his name when he died. The curse of being a historian. Uh, yeah, no, no. That's I'm rolling in it. I am <laughs> phenomenally, independently wealthy. Remember, 50% of that belongs to your wife. <laughs> so 15 years after Lemkin began his work back in 1933, he got the UN to pass UN General Resolution 260. This resolution was passed on December 9th, 1948. It is also called the UN Convention for the Punishment and Prevention of the Crime of Genocide, sometimes just called the CPPCG. Yeah, because that isn't confusing. Officer Holt would have loved that. Officer Holt would have loved that. Bureaucracies love their alphabet suit. We're going to talk in a, a later episode in uh, a little bit about how just how many acronyms you find in articles about this kind of stuff. It gets ridiculous. Now, the UN General Assembly passed this resolution unanimously. In 1948, there were only 58 countries in the UN. Today, there are 193 member states in the United Nations. How many of those can you name? How many of the 58 or how many of the 193? Yes. Um, <laughs> you don't have to sit here and name them. I'm just curious if there's a number that you could confidently say, I know this many. <laughs> if pressed, I could probably name off the top of my head between 30 and 50 UN member states. But I, unlike the Animaniacs of old, I do not have all the countries on the planet memorized. That song doesn't even hold up anymore. We've got some new ones since Yakko sang that to us. That's more than I know, so I'm very impressed with you. Thank you very much. There are 195 or 197 countries on the planet, depending on how you count them, only 193 of which are actual member states of the UN. Uh, the Holy See, also called the Vatican, and the nation of Palestine are observer states in the UN, so they get a little bit less consideration. Depending on how you count them, 
Taiwan is sometimes considered a, uh, its own country, depending on how you count them. So is Kosovo, which has declared itself an independent nation, but hasn't received any international recognition for their claim yet. So that's probably kind of like an 18-year-old being like, I'm an adult! <laughs> To a certain extent, yes. It's also somewhat similar to uh, back in 1804 when Haiti declared itself independent and most of the nations of Europe just stuck their middle fingers out and ignored them for a while. Oh, Haiti. Well, then Haiti kicked Napoleon's ass and... Yeah, Haiti. Yeah, Haiti. But then their general got placed under house arrest and died two years later. But that's a story for a different day. So the Genocide Convention passed unanimously in 1948, but it didn't come into legal force until January 12th, 1951, when 20 countries had become party to it. If the number of parties to the uh, convention ever drops below 16, the convention just ceases to exist automatically. We have 152 states have ratified or acceded to the convention, so we've got a long way to go before we hit that 16, but it might just disappear at some point. Do we know why 16 was the cap? Or the minimum, rather? I don't know off the top of my head. Nothing I found really... The convention doesn't mention why 16 is the number. I assume it has something to do with the 20 states who uh, originally signed it and possibly something to do with 16 is probably some percent of 58. I'm not going to bother doing that math right <laughs> now, but it's probably uh, a percentage of the original member states in the UN, of which there were only 58. Okay. No one ever really updates that thing. I mean, cost of living hasn't kept up with inflation since the 1970s, so we know how bad governments are at keeping up with the passage of time. So what follows is going to be a little bit of a lengthy recitation of Lemkin's original definition of genocide uh, that he wrote in his book, Axis Rule in Occupied Europe. Generally speaking, genocide does not necessarily mean the immediate destruction of a nation except when accomplished by mass killings of all members of a nation. It is intended rather to signify a coordinated plan of different actions aiming at the destruction of essential foundations of the life of national groups with the aim of annihilating the group themselves. The objectives of such a plan would be the disintegration of the political and social institutions, of culture, language, national feeling, religion, and the economic existence of national groups, and the destruction of the personal security, liberty, health, dignity, and even the lives of the individuals belonging to such groups. That was a lot of words, and I'm sure I lost some of you part of the way through the reading of that, so let's try and sum that up a bit. What Lemkin is saying is that genocide isn't necessarily just the physical destruction of a group. It's also the destruction of the things that make the group unique. It's language, it's culture, it's traditions uh, and symbols, it's political and social institutions, the things by which we define ourselves as members of a society. What are some present-day examples that we can use for comparison? So up until 1996, there were these institutions called residential schools in the United States, Canada, and Australia, whose primary job was to kidnap Native Americans, Aboriginals, 
uh, and First Nation people, bring them into these schools where they would live every day of their life from like age seven to age 18, and then utterly strip them of their culture. Uh, their culture was demonized, they were forbidden to speak their language, things of that nature. For a more modern example, we can look to the detention camps that we have on the southern border and the children who are being taken from their families and just put in the foster system uh, with no real chance or ability to ever be reunited with their actual parents. This is actually part of the UN's uh, official definition of genocide that we'll be getting to in just a little bit. There are 19 distinct articles in the UN Convention on the Punishment and Prevention of the Crime of Genocide, but the only ones that we really need for our purposes are Articles 2 and 3. 19 distinct articles and we only need two of them? Article 1 is really just a preamble and, you know, just affirms the responsibilities of all signatory parties to punish and prevent the crime of genocide in times of war or peace. One of those, I'm fairly certain it's Article 16, but don't quote me on that, is the one that talks about how the convention can disappear um, so a lot of them are just bureaucratic, you know, unimportant. Here are the, you know, mechanisms by which we, you know, have meetings and take minutes and stuff. So in short, after Article 3, it just ambles. <sighs> it's only episode one. Please don't make me fire you. Go ahead, fire me. Have fun. So Article 2 defines genocide, the UN definition, despite the large number of people who disagree with certain aspects of it is the one that we use for all legal proceedings uh, dealing with genocide. Article 3 lists all of the crimes that are punishable under the authority of the convention and the UN. Uh, if at any point during the recording of this you hear a cat meowing, that is either Hera or Boots, you are welcome. So Article 2, and this is again a bit wordy and legalese. In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such, killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction in whole or in part, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and forcibly transferring children of the group to another group. So all five of those things constitute genocide, and that fifth one, Article 2, Subsection E, is what's currently happening on the southern border in these detention camps. It's the same aspect of genocide that occurred during the period of residential schools from 1870 to 1996. So we were both still alive when there were residential schools in this country and Canada. Australia closed theirs a little bit earlier. The following acts shall be punishable. This is Article 3. Genocide, conspiracy to commit genocide, direct and public incitement to commit genocide, attempt to commit genocide, and complicity in genocide. So, you know, those five things uh, can be punishable under the UN's authority. 
usually you don't find trials for any of the other four, but especially in the case of Rwanda, we found cases of direct and public incitement, uh, especially in the case of Radio Televisión Libre de Mirkulins, RTLM. It was a radio station during the Rwandan genocide. We'll talk about it more when we do our episode on Rwanda. I know we'll talk about it more when we do that episode, but because I'm curious now, what does that translate to? Do you know? Um, radio, television, um, honestly, no. Okay, something to find out yeah, then. Yeah, on an interesting side note, uh, the Mikulins was also the name of the hotel uh, in the movie Hotel Rwanda, where Paul Rusesabagina saved a few a uh, hundred, if not almost a thousand people during the hundred days of the Rwandan genocide. I don't think there's any connection between the hotel and the radio station, but we will again talk about that when we get to Rwanda. So the first draft of the convention included political killings, but that provision was removed as a compromise following objections from a few countries including the Soviet Union, a permanent member of the UN Security Council. Doesn't it seem a little odd to compromise on what falls under genocide? Yes. <laughs> Unfortunately, and as much as I am loath to admit it, the UN and every country around the planet has been compromising on issues of human rights for as long as there have been two people from different cultures standing near each other. We, for some reason, find it very difficult to accept that all people are people deserving the same dignity and rights under the law, regardless of how they look or what they believe. But, you know, this is just going to continue uh, my long track record of being disappointed in the UN. The UN, if you're listening to this, you know what you did or didn't do, as the case may be. Now, there are five permanent members of the UN Security Council. The US, the UK, uh, France, now the Fifth French Republic, the USSR, now the Russian Federation, and the Republic of China, now the People's Republic of China. Some nations, mostly the Soviet Union, feared that including political groups would invite greater international intervention in domestic politics, as political groups rise and fall and disappear fairly often. Uh, we don't have a bull moose party anymore. It's likely that the USSR championed the removal of this clause because of, you know, the great purge that took place between 1936 and 1938. The Great Purge, also called the Great Terror, was a period of time during which the Bolsheviks and Joseph Stalin executed over one million political opponents. The purge began in earnest following the murder of Sergei uh, Mironovich Kirov, a prominent revolutionary politician and close personal friend of Joseph Stalin, uh, a man whose name I probably just butchered. I think he'll forgive you. Well, he's dead, so it doesn't matter. Under international law, uh, genocide has two mens rea elements. Mens rea is uh, a legal term that's just the mental element of a person's intention to commit a crime or knowledge that one's actions would cause a crime to be committed. It's a necessary element in many crimes. You have to prove intent. With regard to genocide, it's usually accepted that there are two types of intent that can be employed, general and specific. Intent is accepted to mean that prohibited acts were committed with intent 
knowledge, recklessness, or negligence. The Rome Statute, which established the International Criminal Court, defines intent as um, you either mean to do the thing or you know that the thing will occur in the ordinary course of events. So you either did it or you're aware that it was going to happen. Okay. So the European Court of Human Rights noted in its judgment on the Jorik versus Germany case that in 1992, the majority of legal scholars took a narrow view on intent to destroy, saying that it meant the intended physical, biological destruction of the protected group. However, the European Court of Human Rights also noted that a minority took a broader view and did not consider biological destruction to be necessary as the intent to destroy a national, racial, religious, or ethnic group was enough to qualify as genocide. The as-written definition of genocide also agrees with the minority opinion, but the definition of genocide is still up for considerable debate. Article 2, subsection B includes bodily or mental harm to the group. There's not necessarily any physical destruction of these people during that time, just severe bodily or mental harm. We could very easily include the transatlantic slave trade uh, in this part of the definition. And Article 2, subsection E includes transferring children from one group to another. Um, there is very rarely a physical death in the case of Article 2, subsection E, but that doesn't prevent it from being genocide. Or traumatic. Or horrifically traumatic, right? Which then it goes back to Article 2, subsection B, with that severe mental harm. In Prosecutor v. Radislav Kristic from April 2004, part of the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, uh, they addressed the issue of in part or in whole and found that the part must be a substantial part of that group. The aim of the Genocide Convention is to prevent the intentional destruction of entire human groups, and the part targeted must be significant enough to have an impact on the group as a whole. So it has to be a significant number and not a tiny subsection or just a small percentage. For it to qualify as genocide, it's generally assumed that it has to be a large enough percentage of the group to cause long-term harm. Um, if you have an ethnic group of just 100 people and you kill 99 of them, it's just as much genocide as when 6 million Jews die during the Holocaust. It's just we're dealing with a smaller group. But I don't understand what, what makes it enough. Arbitrary determinations by the international court. There's no set in stone way to define exactly what's enough because how we also define um, in part or in whole, it's not just the numeric size of the targeted portion. It can also be the prominence of the people within the group who were killed. So if a specific part of the group is, you know, emblematic of the overall whole or is essential to its survival, that may find support in being considered genocide. You don't necessarily need a large percentage, even if the percentage that we have is of important enough people. How we define important enough people is, again, up to an arbitrary distinction by legal scholars and lawyers and 
you know, fancy people wearing fancy suits. The drafters of the convention opted to focus their efforts on what they considered stable identities, those attributes that are considered to be inherent from birth, culture, ethnicity, race, um, things that, you know, don't really change as time goes on. But what about the LGBT community? Ideally, we could just say that the LGBT community would be given protection as a distinct cultural group, but we both know that it doesn't exactly happen that way. Uh, the small nation of Brunei made being homosexual punishable by death not that long ago. Well, I guess I'm not going there. Yeah. So back in 2016, the UN Human Rights Council met in their 32nd session, and Agenda Item 3 was a resolution uh, adopted for the protection against violence and discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. It was adopted by a recorded vote of 23 to 18 with six abstentions. Should we go into those 18 countries and put them on blast? No, it's okay. Okay. The UN has, as time goes on, continued to pass additional resolutions to provide specific targeted groups with additional protections that people still don't think they have, despite, you know, things like the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and the CPPCG. Back in 2008, they published the Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People, uh, the UN DRIP, one of the few acronyms that you can just say as a word. <laughs> The um, ICTR cemented the determination that any permanent or stable group was to be afforded protection under the CPPCG. What specifically permanent or stable means, I don't know, but, you know, permanent or stable. A group whose membership isn't really subject to wild fluctuations or change. Despite the fact that the UN's definition of genocide is the one that's used in all tribunal determinations, there's significant debate over what exactly constitutes genocide. If you are interested in reading a book on genocide, I would recommend checking out Adam Jones, A Comprehensive Introduction, Second Edition. Um, it was the first genocide textbook that I ever read, and it, it is a textbook, so you know, be aware of that. But the book includes 22 distinct definitions of genocide from various scholars in the field, all of which disagree with each other <laughs> and with the UN. Um, That's hilarious. It's absolutely book wild. Now, despite 132 countries currently accepting the authority of the CPPCG, many have certain reservations about its authority. There are currently 28 countries which have active reservations about certain aspects of the CPPCG. Most of them are concerning Article 9. So when I said that we only had to worry about Articles 2 and 3, apparently I was a liar. You lied. I'm, I'm you a, lied I'm, to me. I lied to you. I'm sorry. Can you forgive me? You lied to me on, <laughs> like, on radio. Yeah. Other people are going to hear this. I know. I know. Um, tune in next month to hear if she forgives me. Um, Article 9 says, Disputes between contracting parties relating to the interpretation, application, and fulfillment of the present convention including those relating to the responsibility of a state for genocide or for any other acts enumerated in Article 3, shall be submitted to the International Court of Justice. Anyone who is a party to the dispute can make the submission. 
So there are uh, 16 countries that currently have reservations concerning Article 9, um, and they don't feel themselves bound by the CPPCG's authority. The Democratic People's Republic of Algeria, Argentina, Bahrain, Bangladesh, China. China also doesn't consider Taiwan's acceptance of the convention to be legal because they consider Taiwan to be just part of China and they don't get their own autonomy. India, Malaysia, Morocco, the Philippines, Rwanda, Singapore, Spain, Venezuela, the Socialist Republic of Vietnam, Yemen, and the United States of America refuses to accept Title IX or Article IX authority of the UN. That doesn't surprise me. I, we live in this country. Yeah, we're gonna talk at some point about the ICC and uh, the Hague Invasion Act, uh, which was passed by George Bush back in 2003. Most of the Article 9 reservations are based around the fact that the countries in question feel that they shouldn't be able to be subject to the jurisdiction of the CPPCG unless they themselves consent in each specific case. Now, consent is an important thing, and, you know, it should be used in all things, but you're being accused of genocide, my dude. I don't think I need to get your permission to try you for a crime. But then we get back to the issue of state sovereignty, and at what point does or do international concerns outweigh the ability of states to self-determine? It's a sticky wicket, as the saying goes. I have never heard that saying. It's from cricket. You've never heard that saying? No. One of the first accusations of genocide that was submitted to the UN following the ratification of the convention was against the United States. To the surprise of no one, the Civil Rights Congress submitted it. They were a radical group founded in 1946 with the intent of defending workers' rights and black Americans. Oh yeah. They worked fairly closely with the NAACP and, you know, other workers' rights groups, but they disbanded in 1956, shortly after being accused of communist leanings by the House Committee of Un-American Activities. Boo! The Red Scare did a lot of damage to a lot of things, but not before the CRC could submit a 237-page petition to the UN. It was supported by such persons as W.E.B. Du Bois, William Patterson, and Paul Robeson, which is a great get. Paul Robeson's amazing. Who's Paul Robeson? Paul Robeson was a famous lounge singer from the Jazz Age. Okay. The petition stated that even after 1945, the U.S. was responsible for hundreds of legal and extra-legal deaths and several other genocidal abuses. So the CRC didn't even dig back into all of the history of the U.S.'s abuses against Africans and African Americans, and they still found 237 pages of stuff and signatures. That's intense. Also, I'm not familiar with the term extra-legal, because in my brain, extra-legal just means that it's super-legal. So uh, extra-legal, whose first recorded use was in 1635, fun fact, of the podcast just means being beyond the province or authority of law. So le extra legal is just uh, an antonym for legal in this case. That's weird, but okay. <laughs> the CRC's petition was called We Charge Genocide. 
They just put it right out there. It does what it says on the tin. To build its case for black genocide, the document cited many instances of lynching in the United States, as well as legal discrimination, disenfranchisement of blacks in the South, a series of incidents of police brutality dating to the present, the present for when they submitted it, and systemic inequalities in health and quality of life. The central argument was that the U.S. government was both complicit with and responsible for a genocidal situation based on the UN's own definition of genocide. You may note, if you have ever read the news ever in your life, that a lot of what the CRC has charged the US with is stuff that's still happening today in 2020. So, yeah. We don't learn. No, no, we don't. We'll talk about genocide denial and the impact of it in a later episode, but... Just, it's a bad thing? <laughs> Let's stick with that for now. The petition was submitted in 1951, almost immediately after the convention came into legal effect. We Charge Genocide was ignored by much of the mainstream American press, but the Chicago Tribune called it shameful lies and evidence against the value of the genocide convention itself. Even Raphael Lemkin, the coiner of the term genocide, denied the charges in the petition, stating that the overall population of African Americans was increasing, so a charge of genocide was ridiculous. He published an op-ed in the New York Times arguing that blacks did not experience the destruction, death, and annihilation that would qualify their treatment as genocide. Eleanor Roosevelt called it ridiculous. Even the NAACP, at the request of the State Department, called it a gross and subversive conspiracy. They decided not to publish the press release about We Charge Genocide because uh, a We Charge Genocide, the petition used a lot of NAACP sources to make their case. And um, the NAACP said, and I quote, How can we blast a book that uses our records as source material? Asked Roy Wilkins, the head of the NAACP at the time. The UN just completely ignored the petition, going so far as to deny that they had ever received it. That is a load of shit! Uh, yeah, it absolutely is. We Charge Genocide was used as an example of how the Genocide Convention could be used against the US, and it's one of the primary reasons why the US never ratified the convention until 1986. This thing passed in 1948, came into legal effect in 1951, and 35 years later is when the U.S. finally decided, yeah, maybe genocide's bad. All in all, the legacy of genocide is complicated and fraught with nuance. The fact that it's a very recent field does nothing to help our struggle for clarity. The debate over what constitutes genocide will continue to rage in academic circles, courts of law, and podcasts for years to come. And as long as nations prize their individual sovereignty over the need for a strong international community, the ability of the UN to enforce the convention will be sharply curtailed. For now, all we can do is continue to educate ourselves and raise as much awareness as possible for this crime of crimes. The history of genocide is far deeper than we could possibly hope it to be, and there's no indication that it's going to stop in the near future. Following the Holocaust, the nations of the world rallied behind the idea of never again. 
and they have consistently failed to live up to that idea. Never again has become again and again and again with no real signs of substantive change. As this podcast continues, we will be tackling as many instances of genocide and mass atrocity as possible, whether they occur in the real world or within the fictional worlds we create. That's it for this episode. Next episode, we'll be focusing on the Pyramid of Hate and Gregory Stanton's 10 Stages of Genocide as tools for effective analysis. If you like what you heard here, follow us on social media. We're at GenoStoryPod on Twitter, Facebook.com slash GenoStoryPod, or you can send us an email at GenoStoryPod at gmail.com if you have any questions, comments, or topics you'd like to hear about. Please rate, review, or subscribe on your favorite podcatcher if you can. It helps us get seen so other people can find us, especially because this is the very first episode of this podcast. I do some other stuff. I do three different podcasts. One is called The Circle of Friendship, which is a podcast about the Circle of Magic books by Tamara Pierce, where we discuss friendship, magic, and Briar Moss. I also do the Rob Thomas, no, not that one, Robcast, where we discuss the works of Rob Thomas. No, not that one. And I do a podcast called Reignite, where we do a deep dive into the Mass Effect series. I highly recommend that you listen to all of those podcasts. Uh, Big shout out to my wife for helping me with this one, despite being on 12 other podcasts. Also, thank you to Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech for our show music. Thank you to the app Hatchful and, again, my amazing wife for designing and then editing our logo. I'm John. And I'm MJ. And this is Genostory. We agreed to do this. fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue also you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company offer flexible budget-friendly coverage for you learn more at uh1.com